Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. At this very moment, people across the world are contemplating volunteering to go and fight in Ukraine. In the 1930s, many people were asking similar questions and faced the same dilemma during the Spanish Civil War. British novelist George Orwell was one of these people. He wrote about the realities of his decision to go to Spain in homage to Catalonia. It is not easy to convey the nightmare atmosphere of that time, the peculiar uneasiness produced by rumours that were always changing, by censored newspapers and the constant presence of armed men. It is not easy to convey it because, at the moment, the thing essential to such an atmosphere does not exist in England. One of the most horrible features of war is that all the war propaganda, all the screaming and lies and hatred, comes invariably from people who are not fighting. I'm your host, James Rogers, and with all this in mind, here on the Warfare Podcast, we want to delve deep into the history of foreign fighters. To take us through this history, we have Giles Tremlett on the podcast. Giles is the author of an excellent new book, The International Brigades, Fascism, Freedom, and the Spanish Civil War. He's also a Guardian correspondent and a fellow of the London School of Economics, who is currently researching the growing number of foreign fighters in Ukraine. Hi, Giles. Thanks for taking the time to come on the Warfare podcast. Ah, well, it's a pleasure to be here. Warfare is very much of the day. It is indeed an important time, especially as many of us would have heard the UK Foreign Secretary's comments stating that she absolutely supported UK citizens going to Ukraine to join the so-called international brigades to fight the Russians. And so I really want to get you on the podcast because it seems like an appropriate time to look back through recent history at foreign fighters and the so-called international brigades in Europe prior to the Second World War, specifically in the Spanish Civil War, which I know that you focus on and have a new book out on. So take us back to that conflict. Give us some of the background to the origins and dynamics of the Spanish Civil War. Okay, so as you said, the Spanish Civil War breaks out in 1936, so we're just three years before the Second World War starts. And it's very much part of the wider conflict that is sort of emerging in Europe at the time between 
fascism or Nazi Germany on the one hand and various others, I think we'd have to say, on the other hand. In this case, uh, in Spain, what we get is an uprising, if you want, an attempted military coup by right-wing generals who are backed by the fascist party, the Falange, who are also backed by Benito Mussolini's in Italy, and also fairly soon after they start by Adolf Hitler in uh, Germany, uh, both of whom send important units, especially air units, to fight in Spain. Spain had an elected democratic government. The idea, it was left-wing, the idea was to simply to overthrow it. There are some sort of remarkable comparisons to what's happening in Ukraine as well, because although this was a coup, it wasn't that sort of classic coup where you just grab the presidential palace, the radio stations and half a dozen ministries and declare that you have won the day. In fact, this was an attempt by various columns to descend on Madrid, the capital, and take the capital, but starting off from quite far away. So it was sort of various fighting armies heading for the capital as fast as they could, which seems to be something very similar to what's happening at the moment with Kiev in the Ukraine. And in this conflict, it was it was foreign fighters on both sides, I suppose you could say. You had the support of the Italians and the Germans on one side with their state militaries, but then you had this wide, quite varied in, in skill and both motivation group of people that came from all over the world to support the freedom fighters, didn't you? Indeed. So we had 35,000 foreigners from more than 80 of today's countries came to Spain to defend the Republic, which was Spanish democracy, against the the rebel right-wing generals. Volunteers started appearing in Spain virtually from the first day of the war, just as they are appearing in, uh, in the Ukraine at the moment. And eventually, three or four months after the war had started, a decision was made to try and organise as many of them as possible into a single unit, uh, which became known as the International Brigades, and had as its sort of organising backbone the Comintern, which was the Communist International, uh, based in Moscow. You know, the Spanish Civil War was really the first step in appeasement or one of the first major steps in appeasement of Hitler in the sense that the Western democracies decided they did not want to get involved. Something called non-intervention with an international non-intervention committee was formed to which virtually everybody belonged, including Hitler's Germany and Mussolini's Italy and Stalin's Russia. Western democracies basically did not send weapons, did not send units, tried to prevent, in this particular case, their own volunteers from going to Spain and you know, basically ignored the fact that Germany and Italy were just treating the whole thing as a farce and actually sending their own units. So we had the Condor Legion, which was a Luftwaffe unit that was sent into Spain and had about 20,000, 25,000 Germans rotated through it 
and we had about 70, 75,000 Italians, entire divisions came over and fought. And against that, well, the international brigades who were in total 35,000 people, one fifth of whom died, another fifth of whom were injured, uh, wounded, and, you know, an unknown number also deserted. So we're not entirely sure how the, how the numbers worked out. But in British and Irish terms, it was about 2,300 volunteers travelled from Britain and Ireland, another 2,800 travelled from the United States, and then there were many, many more who came from France and around Europe and from Canada and from Chile and from as far away as China and India and Ethiopia and um, all around the, the globe, really. And was it this passion for communism, was it ideology and disdain for fascism that united these fighters? Because when you go through this list and you talk about Irish fighters and British fighters and you look at the makeup of that, you can see former IRA personnel, you know, fighting alongside these so-called English brigades. Was there much tension within the ranks or was there a certain unity against the cause in what was a truly brutal war? Some may say the, the early throes of modern industrialised warfare. Well, yes, indeed. I mean, you know, today when we are seeing uh, pictures of Ukrainians huddled in metro stations, in underground tube stations, well, you know, the first time pictures like that appeared in the world's newspapers were in Madrid, which was, you know, the first major European city to be bombed from the air consecutively day after day after day. And the same thing happened to Barcelona much later on in the war. You know, the designs for, for, for Britain's air raid shelters in the Second World War, some of them actually came from Spain and Spaniards went over to help advise how to build them. So, I mean, the cohesive factor here was that everybody defined themselves as anti-fascists. That was the definition and it was meant to be, in political terms, a broad popular front unit. There were popular fronts in both France and in Spain in government. These were basically broad left-wing coalitions. What made the international brigades different, however, was that there was a very high proportion of, of communists. About half of them were, were communists, precisely because Comintern was the main organiser. In this case, in fact, the Republic's only real support in terms of arms and military advisers came from the Soviet Union. And so there was a certain sense in Comintern also organising or helping to organise the international brigades. But they didn't, the volunteers didn't serve a foreign army in the sense that it wasn't a foreign unit in Spain. They all became members of the Republican army in Spain. And then within their ranks, well, yes, there was arguments amongst the various political tendencies. There were arguments, too, amongst the various sort of national groupings. They tend to be formed in national battalions. So you'd have a British battalion and an American battalion and several French battalions and several Polish battalions and German battalions. And there were rivalries and arguments amongst them. I mean, that wasn't generally a huge problem. What did become a problem was because in Stalinist Soviet Union at the time, we're talking about the period of the Great Purges in the military, 
And so there was sort of Trotskyist witch hunts, shall we say, within the brigades. Again, not terrible in the sense of people being taken away and shot, but sort of not very good, shall we say, for morale, where, you know, suddenly being a Trotskyist was a terrible thing and made you a fascist at the same time, according to the communists. So is this one of the reasons why the British government didn't want British citizens to go and fight in this conflict? Was it a worry that it was a almost radicalised communism, that people would return home with military experience, they might cause a national security threat back home, or were there other worries embroiled in this? I think that was mostly the concern. I mean, in the Spanish Civil War, once the generals started their the war and started their attempted coup, there was a counter-revolution on the other side. So the trade unions, the political parties of the left were largely in control, certainly over the first few months. And depending on where you were, you know, you might find yourself in a region controlled by anarchists, for example, who were very strong in uh, Spain. And it took quite a while to sort of shake that out and bring a degree of unity George Orwell famously got caught out in this. He was fighting with a a Trotskyist unit at the time. Government decided to crack down on anarchists and Trotskyist units, uh, which is why, you know, he spent a week in Barcelona sitting on a rooftop by the Ramblas pointing his weapon at a bunch of other Republicans over the other side. I have to say, in the end, they ended up swapping beer bottles and, and things like that. So it wasn't that serious. But it was a reality. And indeed, Orwell himself, in a homage to Catalonia, for the first time, you know, embarks on his sort of anti-totalitarian writing, which is partly his experience of being hounded by his own side, if you like, or a part of his own side when he's in Barcelona. So all that was going on. I don't think that stopped the international brigades from being an effective fighting force. And I don't think it really impacted hugely on the day-to-day life of the volunteers. You know, they were soldiers in the front line who often, as you know, know less about what's happening around them than even the journalists who are sitting comfortably in their hotels and bars and and talking to the um, commanders and politicians. But they were very effective. They arrived just in time to help defend Madrid, which didn't fall during the Spanish Civil War. So the idea, again, We can make the comparison with Ukraine that you would dash in, grab the capital, impose your government and it would all be over. Well, that didn't work in Spain either. Madrid held out and that meant that the war took three years instead of three months. And it meant that it almost continued long enough to be part of the Second World War. You know, the war ended five months exactly to the day before Hitler invaded Poland. And in fact, the Republicans had hoped that they could extend it so that the inevitable war that they could see coming would start and then they would be, then the Allies would appear and be on their on their side. But unfortunately for them, that didn't happen. And General Franco became dictator of Spain and ruled for another 36 years until 1975. 
Well, let's take it down to an operational level, because you say to some extent they were successful, but surely not everyone who wanted to fight was selected to fight. So how were people chosen, and were the droves that came over from Britain, those who were eager to get to the front lines, perhaps a little too eager, and not containing any military experience, were these people turned away and sent back home? So yes, yeah, so some people were sent back home, but especially at the beginning where some French mayors seemed rather keen to sort of empty their streets of vagabonds and the like and stuck them on trains for the Spanish border. So there was a selection process and a lot of weeding out had to happen. Some people were too old, some people were too young. Eventually, you know, they ended up with a group of very enthusiastic volunteers, but as you say, mostly very inexperienced the Republic certainly to begin with was not well armed. The rebel generals had basically taken most of the professional army with them. And um, so it was a bit of a kind of ragtag bunch who had to learn as they went along. The international brigades were shock troops, so they were thrown into the front at the hardest spots. And in fact, even though some of them had They'd mostly only trained for a week before they went into battle, certainly in the first few battles around Madrid. That was already more than many of the other Republican militia units in a basically a hodgepodge army. It was more than they had done. So people were actually quite impressed by the international brigades when they turned up, even though, frankly, they had to learn under fire. And that's what they did at great expense. But Madrid held, and one of the reasons Madrid held was that the first two international brigades turned up and prevented the Francoist side from escaping from a bulge that they occupied around the university city. They successfully crossed the river Manzanares on the western side of the city, which is a sort of natural barrier since they were coming from the west. But then they were held in a small area around the um, what was then a brand new university campus that hadn't even opened, in fact, and was then thoroughly uh, destroyed by over the next few years. But, you know, the lines there eventually held and remained that way for three years, and the brigades went off to fight in different battles in the centre and east of Spain. You know, the best-known names are Jarama or the Ebro battle or Guadalajara or Belchite. And so they played their part. You know, the rest of the army improved eventually to a state where they were as good as the international brigades. And both between the fact that sort of recruitment tailed off and a lot of people were dead or injured by 1938, they were a very reduced force. In fact, the international brigades as such still existed, but were mostly made up of Spaniards by the end by 1938 so they were sort of one-third foreign two-thirds Spanish almost and at that stage the Republic decided that it wanted to remove its foreign fighters mainly as a way of putting pressure on Hitler and on Mussolini to do the same it didn't work so the brigades left before the war ended or rather those that could left because the Germans and the Italians and the Hungarians and the Poles mostly didn't have anywhere to go anyway. So many of them stayed in Spain and actually sort of rejoined the war later on for some of the very chaotic and short-lived final phases. 
ancient history fans, this is our moment. Over on the Ancients podcast, twice every week, we release new episodes covering topics dedicated to our distant past. Check out the Ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Russell Crowe, we're still interested. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now, I'm sure in terms of the British who volunteered, many of them in time would have been absorbed into the British military and to some extent their combat experience would have been very useful but when they initially came home how were they treated by the British government? Well they weren't treated particularly well I mean they'd been watched very closely by MI5 there were files on them that you can find in the National Archives but individually they were perhaps treated not terribly well as a whole they had quite an impact because they became a sort of symbol for sort of a left-wing expression of popular opposition, let's say, to fascism generally. So they had a sort of quite a strong political input, especially into the trade unions. And so that was quite important. I mean, as individuals, they were, you know, they had very sort of different paths afterwards. So I always like to point to Jack Jones, who became the head of the Transport and General Workers Union, was the man responsible for lots of strikes in Britain in the 1970s, was once voted in a BBC poll, I think the most powerful man in Britain. And then Sir Alfred Sherman, who at the same time was Margaret Thatcher's free markets guru. So, you know, I think Alfred Sherman had been a communist and then made a political voyage in the opposite direction. 
Um, we don't know exactly how, to what extent Jack Jones was or wasn't a communist. There's some question marks around that. But it was a very, you know, some people on the right were very interested and supportive of the brigades. In fact, the young conservative of the time, who was very worried about the growing power of Hitler, whose name was Edward Heath, went out to visit them and was a supporter. And of course, Ted Heath later became prime minister. So, and indeed, in reunions that brigaders had afterwards, you would find Ted Heath and Alfred Sherman there. And indeed, uh, Michael Portillo would turn up because, of course, his father was a Spanish Republican as well. So get a few conservatives and then a lot of sort of quite strong left wingers, shall we say. And am I right in thinking that more internationally, some of these members of the International Brigade went on to some more controversial positions across Europe? Absolutely. So because there is a communist Comintern spine to the brigades, especially amongst the Germans and those who were already in exile from their own regimes. Um, That goes for Italy, it also goes for Hungary, it goes for Poland. So during the Second World War, all these brigaders, almost all of them, took part in resistance movements. Um, In the French resistance, they were very important. The first German officer to be shot in Paris was shot by a brigader. The second German officer to be shot in, uh, I think it was in Lyon, was also shot by a brigader. Mussolini was uh, eventually killed with a brigader's weapon. He didn't actually pull the trigger and brigaders ran several of the um, Italian, particularly partisan armies and almost all of the Yugoslav partisan armies. And they were also you know, dropped into Poland and other places, by, especially by the Russians. But after the Second World War, when the Russians had control of Eastern Europe and they were looking around for people they, who they trusted to run the new states, well, their eyes fell immediately on the international brigaders. And so many of them took part in those regimes, specifically in the army and the police forces, but also the first not exactly Prime Minister, but the first leader of East Germany was a brigader, Prime Minister of Albania, a Hungarian Prime Minister, lots and lots of ministers, but also lots of chiefs of police and lots of generals. The worst example of all is the Stasi in East Germany, which was set up by an international brigader and was then run by another international brigade veteran for virtually its entire life. In fact, he was still in charge when the Berlin Wall came down. You know, so there's a very mixed post-Spanish Civil War history to be to be told about the Brigaders. And, uh, you know, it depends very much on their national stories as well, which then, you know, take over. It is quite disturbing to hear that the Stasi are a, a long legacy of the Brigaders. I'm sure they themselves, fighting at the time, those who went out there for an ideological cause would definitely have uh, not got a good night's sleep thinking about that being one part of their legacy. But let's bring this back up to the present day, Giles, and our current crisis. Because right now, Conservative colleagues of the British Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, are saying that it would be reckless and illegal for British citizens to join the fight in Ukraine. So contrary to what the Foreign Secretary is saying, and and probably quite rightly so, but I know you've been keeping an eye on this situation. So could you enlighten us as to the current state of Ukrainian President Zelensky's international legion? Well, he has put out a call for foreign volunteers 
and foreign volunteers are arriving. I've spoken this morning to one of them, a Canadian who was heading for the border. He'd just he'd flown into Hungary and then gone to Poland, and we, he was being he's actually a paramedic, and he was being driven to the border by a Polish woman. And he told me that he was in contact with a group of 20 Canadian military veterans who were on their way and sort of dozens of other people, including at least two Brits who either wanted to go or were actually, you know, on their way. So I think we are going to get very soon a large number of foreigners appearing in the Ukraine. And that's going to be very interesting to see how that actually works out for the Ukrainians and for the Ukrainian military. But they're definitely there, they're definitely on their way. And, you know, this guy, I'm not going to tell you his name at the moment, but, you know, he said to me, you know, well, I'm a paramedic and I will go across the border. I want to, you know, help the refugees first. When I spoke to him, he was in a medical supply store in Poland buying, uh, you know, foil blankets for, for refugees. And, but he said, you know, he was going to look after refugees for a couple of days, then go across when more people had turned up. And he wanted to be a military paramedic. And as he said, you know, healing people half the time and shooting at them the other half. I think that no one can deny the bravery of somebody like that who has medical training and wants to go out there and help. And of course, there is a political boost that's provided to Ukraine by this international support, the world coming together to back the Ukrainian president and his fight against the Russians. But when we think about it in terms of reality, are there not liabilities here at a military operational level? Perhaps looking back through the history or what we're seeing today, could these international fighters and and many who may not be trained or have the medical experience or be going out there just to get involved in the excitement of the fight, could they not get more of their own side killed than perhaps helping to achieve a victory? Well, that's a possibility and it will depend on the Ukrainian military being, you know, intelligent about who they accept or don't accept. I mean, obviously, if there are experienced veterans from different armies around the world who are prepared to fight and help, well, they might be useful. You know, we'll just have to see how that works out. I've seen some of the sort of reserve units in Kiev who look pretty ropey anyway. I doubt they'd be any worse than them. It just depends how they're used. And as you say, you know, politically, you know, it will create quite an impact if the bodies start piling up and there are martyrs to the anti-Putin cause from Britain or from France or from the United States or from Canada or from from wherever. So that's going to be very interesting, but it's also going to be very interesting to see how different nationalities and different governments react to this because some countries have laws that say you cannot fight in a foreign army. So that's going to play out in you know very different ways in different countries. But as a correspondent in my journalism days, I was in, uh, in Sarajevo, I was in the Balkan Wars, and there were volunteers there as well. Not very many. One of the most feared volunteer units was actually a Muslim unit, which was, you know, turned out to be a bit of a of a sort of a nucleus for what then became Al-Qaeda, in fact. Some of those fighters went, went on to, to join Al-Qaeda, and Al-Qaeda then became the sort of... Uh, when the international brigades happened, you know, they cast around for comparisons, the journalists and the historians, and they had to go back as far as the Crusades. 
Well, since the Spanish Civil War, we have, of course, had uh, the Al-Qaeda's and various international volunteer transnational outfits. And it'll be interesting to see whether the Ukrainians decide, you know, this foreign legion is a legion, in other words, a unit of itself, or whether they will just feed people into their own units. It's early days, so we'll see. There's an interesting warning in there somewhere, isn't there, Giles, about some of the unintended consequences or legacies for Europe of these units forming in the current fight in Ukraine. It's hard to put your finger on it right now, but if you look back through history and the history that you've told us, I think we can see that there are, of course, some very brave people with great experience who will be able to contribute, but there are also perhaps those who have uh, very different, potentially more... um, sinister or bellicose intentions that can get involved in this fight right now. Yes, and I presume, you know, Putin will be trying to send, you know, fake volunteers over the border as well to disrupt just as fake volunteers joined the international brigades and tried to sabotage things. Um, One of them actually became the sort of the chief quartermaster at one stage, so he's in a very good position to commit you know, acts of sabotage on weapons and things like that. So, yes, it will be very interesting. I mean, it's war. It's messy anyway. You know, anybody listening to this, it is war. It's not a game. It's not an adventure. It's real. The international brigaders, many of them died. Many of them were injured. So it was. it's a very serious thing. And also, once you join an army, and this happened in the Spanish Republican Army, you might be a volunteer once you join... But once you've signed, you belong to that army. And that means you can't just say, oh, and now I'm going home. Because no, because that you have to ask permission from that army. And if you just go home, you are a deserter. And deserters receive discipline of various kinds all the way up to being shot, depending on which army they're in. So, you know, it's a very serious business to go and volunteer in the Ukraine and people and anybody who wants to do it should think very hard about it and be very sure of what they're doing. And there were international fighters who were shot for so-called desertion or just wanting to go home during the Spanish Civil War. Yes, I mean, not a huge number to tell the truth. That was, you know, there was a lot of sort of anti-international brigades propaganda and there has been over, over the years. I mean, there wasn't a huge amount of that, but there was some of that. Uh, It was much more dangerous, actually, to be caught by the other side who just routinely shot foreign volunteers, or certainly to begin with, until they realised that maybe they would be useful for exchanging with, say, uh, Italian prisoners or German pilots or, or something. So, you know, I go back to the same thing. It is war. Well, Joss, thank you so much for your time today. And please tell us, if people want to learn more about the history of the international brigades during the Spanish Civil War, where can they read more? Well, if they want to read at length, I'd be quite happy for them to buy my book, The International Brigades, Fascism, Freedom and the Spanish Civil War, which came out uh, last year in Bloomsbury. You know, that's a very thorough history Uh, narrative history of what happened to the international brigaders. Well, Giles, thank you so much. We'll put a link to that in our show notes. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Okay, thank you very much. 
thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.